0: Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behavior analysis, and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behavior, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field, and I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. So I've set myself a lofty goal, to seek out the giants in the field of precision teaching and ABA, share their journeys and discoveries, and influence the work of practitioners who want to be profoundly impactful with their clients, and to have the heart to chart. Welcome to episode 14 of the ABA NPT podcast, The Truth Behind Testing with Dr. Kimberly Behrens. I could not be more delighted than to welcome her back to the podcast. Dr. Behrens is well known to many of you. She is a scientist, educator, a precision teacher, the founder of Fit Learning and the author of the book, Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. She's my mentor and one of my favorite people on the planet. You can find all of her details at www.drkimberlybarons.com. She has spoken at length in a lot of different forums on the failings of the education system and education systems in general. So I will put links in the podcast notes to her other podcasts and other places that you can hear her speak. Today, though, I welcome her back to talk about a topic very close to my heart, and that is the truth behind neuropsych testing, the truth behind learning disabilities, and the difference between a neuropsych view of the world of learning versus a scientific account of learning. We also have a case study for a child that attended FIT Learning who obtained a neuropsych report, and Dr. Kim will talk about a behavioural scientist's account for the student's performance versus a neuropsych perspective. So let's get this party started with Dr. Kimberly Berens. I would like to welcome Dr. Kimberly Berens to the podcast again. Thank you so much for coming back and speaking to us today on this topic of the truth behind testing. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me again. That's so good. <laughs> I'm very very grateful that you come and talk on this topic. On that note, why did you agree and uh, to come and talk to me about um, neuropsychological testing? Well, you
1: know, this is a a massive issue all over the world, not just in the United States, but it's it's extreme in the United States. There's been statistics provided that, you know, over 20% of kids in the US at least are classified as having a, a learning disability of some sort. But, you know, when you really look at the epidemiological data around true neurological impairment, that impacts less than 1% of kids. So there is evidence to indicate that, you know, more than 20 times, you know, 20 times more students are being classified as should be,
0: um, which is a real epidemic, I would say. So I'm always happy. Yeah. I mean, how do kids come to get diagnosed with a learning disability? Anytime a child is diagnosed with a
1: learning disability, it's based on their behavior. So it's based on what teachers, parents, um, and people in that child's life see them doing and, and that's that's the fundamental, most kind of important distinction to get, that whenever a child is referred for a neuropsychological evaluation, it's based on, main, more often than not, a teacher's observation of that child in her classroom. So something that child is doing in class, if we're talking about a specific, like a reading disability, quote unquote, it would be things that child does when they're reading that
0: kind of leads her to believe there's something wrong with that child. And so then then they get referred. Yeah, and those those things are typically things that people might describe as dyslexia. Well, yeah, I mean that's one. I mean, oftentimes they'll use more
1: general terminology in school district IEPs or individual education plans. That's are they called that in Australia? That's what they're called in. The yes. I don't know what they're called. IEPs. Okay. So in an IEP, they typically try to be more vague. So they'll call it like a specific learning disorder or a specific learning disability, and then of which dyslexia falls in that category. But so for dyslexia, you know, if you look at the DSM, the the criteria for for diagnosing the a, a, a DSM 4 being the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. And I'm using a lot of air quotes that people
0: can't see. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, we can feel them. <laughs> but anyway, so if you read the classification of the DSM, it's all
1: behavior. Yeah. So it's all learners who put phonemes in words that aren't there or leave phonemes out of words that should that are there um they might skip words they might insert words into a sentence that aren't that aren't in the sentence they might read from the wrong direction so right to left and the most I'll be honest with you the 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 most glaringly common characteristic of kids diagnosed with dyslexia is guessing so yeah. word guessing again None of that has anything to do with a child's brain. I want to be quite honest. You know, in the DSM 4 or the DSM 5 or whatever you know version you're on, they don't say the brain presents with this characteristic, or this neurological profile has been measured by some kind of neuroscientific tool. You know, the classifications in the DSM are all behavior. They're all behavioral. So it's all based on behavioral characteristics of, of
0: learners, which is a very important thing to understand. Yes. And generally, so in that circumstance where a teacher is observing kids doing or not doing those things, they would recommend to the parents that they get neuropsych testing. Yes. And then what type of assessments will a neuropsych run? Well, I mean... More often than not, a neuropsych is going to run a battery of
1: academic tests. And so in the academic tests, they're going to look at reading skills, they're going to look at math skills, they're going to look at comprehension skills, and then they're going to run another battery of tests that supposedly measure more mystical things, like things that seem more cognitive, such as processing, you know, looking at processing. So language processing is, is a test you'll see. There's, a, there's one that will also look at impulsivity, which is a, you know an, a, an evaluation of, of a learner to classify them with attention deficit disorder. So, you know, and then they'll often run an IQ test, which is, again, all an IQ test is is a measure of performance, but it's supposedly measures something inside the learner's brain somewhere called IQ. Yeah. Um, so, there'll be some clearly delineated academic achievement tests, but then there are these other more, you know, esoteric tests that look like they're measuring something different, like they're measuring cognitive processing or some aspect of the learner's brain. And, and because of the way the tests are described and the, way that, and, and the names of those tests, so it makes it leads the parent and the neuropsychologist, to be quite honest, because they don't have these distinctions to actually believe that they are measuring the brain, that they are measuring, you know, that dis- that dysfunction or, or, you know, that supposedly exists. But if you actually look at what's being measured, even in those more esoterically named tests,
0: they're not measuring anything in the brain. They're still measuring the child's behavior. But somewhere along way, there, there is a, um, an insinuation or a description that they, are there is a correlation between what's occurring in the brain and these measures of academic performance. Is that fair to say? So they would describe that this children is underperforming and what could account for this is slow processing disorder or central processing disorder or dyslexia or something that appears to be permanent and part of the brain. Exactly. It's correlative, but not necessarily causative. Is is Exactly. And so, I, you know, whatever I taught, and, and look, you know, I, I cause a
1: lot of controversy. <laughs> But I say these things because the, you know, I, I, and I, and this is a very delicate thing for me to say, I, and there's only one way to say it and it's scientific illiteracy. Yeah. In, in a way. And, and again, it's not, I'm not trying to bad mouth modern psych, you know, neuropsychologists and, and traditional psychologists and traditional educators. I, I, what I'm saying is they have not had the opportunity to be trained in science, in what science actually is. And unfortunately modern psychology has been has been branded as scientific in nature. But it actually is not scientific in nature because one of the most paramount characteristics of any natural science or tr- I would say true science which is a, you know which natural science is. So natural science being chemistry, biology, physics, behavior science of which you and I are experts. Um, those types of sciences are what we call natural sciences. And one of the the and they are actually the true sciences, because the characteristics of true science is it is based on careful observation of phenomenon, natural phenomenon that are occurring, with the ability to carefully measure that phenomenon in a way that allows the an understanding of how that phenomenon is in, is moved around by various variables in the environment. So like if we're talking about biology, for example, a biologist isn't going to assume that a cell has, you know, has some kind of cancerous teratogen that's been introduced to it. It's going to, a biologist is going to study that cell under a microscope and count various things. For instance, cell you know replications of a, of that cancer cell after it invades a healthy cell they're going to see that with their eyes and they're going to measure it in some ways so that they can make predictions about various things like how rapidly cancer cells grow and how rapidly cancer cells might decay or die as a result of some type of treatment being introduced some type you know for instance some kind of some kind of radiation or chemotherapy I mean that's how all these treatments have come about from the natural sciences from biology and so the very the difference is that in psychology the assumed dysfunction is a hypothetical what we call a hypothetical construct or or you could also call it an explanatory fiction because there's no way to see it you can't see it and you can't directly measure it and then you also can't in, manipulate variables to increase it or decrease it, which is the essence of a scientific, of the scientific method. So if you can't see it, that, and so if you can't directly observe it and you can't develop any instrument that allows you to directly observe it, like for instance, we used to not be able to observe cancer cells. We used to not be able to see those things, which is why a lot of explanatory fictions were created in medicine. During the pre-scientific age, like for instance, using the humors, and again I'm using air quotes, using the humors to explain all human ailments. Because what happens was that physicians of the time knew that things like bile and blood and mucus existed in the human body. They could see them. They saw those, those aspects of the of the body. But what went wrong was then they just hypothetically attributed. Imbalances in those humors to be the cause of human ailments, and because of this faulty attribution, procedures were developed to balance the humors that actually led to death. but those those procedures were not were changed until science advanced because physicians believed in them. It was a belief. Mm-hmm. They believed in the in the in the theory they held about the humors being out of balance, being the cause of human ailments. Well, now that sounds hilarious. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds absurd. Why? Because science advanced and allowed technology to be developed so that we could actually see inside the body. And more importantly, we'd see very small things inside the body. And it was only because we could make those direct observations in science that our our medical field has evolved because we now know What's really occurring is we can, we be able to see it and manipulate it using the scientific method, but you can't see these learning disabilities and we can't see them because they are all hypothetical. They are constructs, which is why they are in no way scientific at, at all. Like a, a, a true scientist would never measure one phenomenon and then make up an explanation for it. That, that's not what happens, but that's what happens in neuropsychological testing. And I know that's an alarming thing for me to be saying. And and this is a billion dollar industry. People make a lot of money off of this kind of testing and these kinds of classifications. And schools get funded based on kids having these kinds of classifications. And to people get paid to supposedly treat these kinds of disabilities, but they they are not scientifically valid. They they've never been they've never been validated
0: in a scientific way they're all hypothetical the problem with them is that they're not prescriptive either right so if a parent goes along think they want to have their child assessed because they're learning differently at school the school sees different something different about their learning or they're concerned with their learning and all of a sudden they get told well your child has central processing disorder that sounds like something permanent something that can't be changed and but it doesn't tell you what to do does not tell you what to do. Yeah,
1: But it's very interesting that if you read any neuropsychological evaluation, you know, and and they'll literally, the first part of the evaluation after they give you the history of the learner will give you their performance, AKA their behavior on the tests that they administered in the assessment. So what that kid did when presented with those tests And then the end of the report, I mean, the middle of the report is then extrapolating the why. So, and again, neuropsychologists present this as as fact. They they give no room for skepticism, which again is, is anti, is, is literally unscientific. You know, when you're a scientist, you're actually trained in, in skepticism and, 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 doubt, you know, it takes Replication after replication after replication after replication after replication before a science before a group of scientists will ever say that something is objectively true. So the fact that a neuropsychologist will run a will run an assessment on a learner one time and then per, and then purport to know why that child performed that way. Yeah. when they measure that performance once, under a completely different set of conditions to where, to how that learner typically performs in a classroom or performs in any other environment. And the why of that performance hasn't been, hasn't been measured or evaluated at all. All that's been evaluated is the performance, which is hilarious because the performance is exactly what got that kid in that room in the first place. Yeah. Like it's almost like the teacher says this kid struggles with reading and then they get referred for a neuropsychological evaluation. And lo and behold, what happens in the neuropsych evaluation? Well, the child struggles with reading. And all that that's all that happens is that the neuropsychologist sees the child struggling with reading, which is what the, the teacher has been seeing, also. So based on the same types of observations the teacher makes, this neuropsychologist somehow has some authority
0: to tell you why. Yeah. And that's never been about that's never been identified yeah. ever. And then you have to look at the conditions under which the child is referred because these people are not, you know, experts in establishing highly motivating environments, right? Or how to construct schedules of reinforcement so that kids are performing at their best. That's the first thing. So it's a generally kids know they're going to this assessment. It's it's not a good thing. It's not. It's not a happy, exciting thing to be going to see a neuropsych when they already probably know that they're struggling. So even on that occasion, it's not an ideal condition for assessment. And then secondly, then the, the recommendations that come out of that are very general. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. So after, so I I was getting through, so, so now we're kind of towards the end of the assessment where they're making reasons
1: with, I'm sorry to say, but they're making up an explanation for why the child performed poorly. So they're, they're just making it up. So they're, they're saying, oh, they perform this way. And so I, I'm, I know I'm saying they, they perform this way because they have dyslexia or some other kind of neurological dysfunction. Then at the end of the report, guess what the recommendations are? Tutoring. The recommendations are some form of intervention, maybe some type of preferential seating or preferential assignment in the school district. But the recommendations are always based on some type of behavioral intervention, even though they're not saying that, even though they don't say Right? It's not like they're saying they need to take this type of, I mean, sometimes they will say take a medication, but not for dyslexia. There's no medical recommendation at all. But the entire thing is medical until the recommendations. And then what are the recommendations? Mm -hmm. Behavioral. Yeah. Why are they behavioral? Because it is. So it, it is just, I mean, when you have the perspective I have of doing this for so many years and it's just laughable from a scientific perspective that, that that this is what the this is the and, and to be honest with you people like us you and me who are interventionists I mean we have been measuring and, and and this is another thing I never said but what what makes me the most angry is that a neuropsychologist who again measures a child's performance one time in their office and then they think that they have the authority to make any kind of, do any kind of analysis of that child's learning ability. It's such a glaring indication of the lack of understanding about what learning is. Because that, the the child's learning has never been measured by that neuropsychologist. They they didn't measure learning. They measured performance. Performance and learning are two profoundly different things. Performance is a measure of, of, of a child's behavior one time. Learning is the, is the, is the measurement of behavior over time. That's the only way learning can be evaluated. It's a process. So that psychologist has never me- measured learning ever, not once, but then they're going to tell that parent that that child has a neuro, has some kind of neurological learning disorder, but they haven't even measured learning. They've measured performance. So the, so it's a, it's a mess. So that you and I who have been intervening and effectively changing behavior and dramatically accelerating learning gains with thousands of kids. We actually know what learning is and our assessments pinpoint skills deficits, which it always is. It's always this child has some component or fundamental skill that has not been mastered and we have to identify what those skills are and we have to get them to master them, which is what we do. And so we might have data of of 240 hours of intervention on a kid. And not only do we have our ongoing kind of more benchmark assessment data, but we have charts on that child's learning across hundreds of academic pinpoints. Yeah. And then this parent will will somehow get, you know, show up at a neuropsychologist who measures that child's once. Guess who seems like the authority? The neuropsychologist. Yeah think about that. We know that child's learning history and that child's level of mastery and what unbelievably complicated contextual conditions impact how that child performs on any given day at any given timing. And yet there, the neuropsychologist
0: shows up as the expert. It is unbelievable. Yeah. Incredibly frustrating. Um, So let's just talk about the Types of diagnoses that you tend to see day to day, I'm pretty sure they'll be because of the DSM. They'll be pretty similar to what we see. But we frequently see uh, central processing disorder, a reading learning disability, sometimes uh, described as dyslexia. Dysgraphia is another one that our kids will get diagnosed with. Dyscalculia as well. Are they the common types of disabilities that? And then ADHD, obviously, is sort of a a more of a med- medical diagnosis, which is the case study that I sent to you of the student that came to us that was possibly on top of dyslexia, also had ADHD because he was highly inattentive, according to the neuroscience. Are they the types of disabilities that I am putting? I am, now I'm using the air quotes when I say disability that students turn up to you with. Yeah, I mean, those
1: are, and look, you know, we also have a let's just be honest, like how many kids we have that come into fit learning that have no classification at all and they're still not reading? Yeah. Yes, they're still struggling right. Yeah, because- and they're still struggling with handwriting. And they're struggling with all those things. Why? Because school doesn't work. Because school is profoundly ineffective, like profoundly ineffective. And we, not only do we have, you know, data from the United States on the profound ineffectiveness of this, but we have global data that across the globe- school doesn't work for a majority of kids so that's that so so here's what i will say the kids so all kids struggle the kids who don't struggle are the actual rarities yeah the majority of kids do the majority of kids struggle in school at some level in in something because school isn't guided by science as we know school is guided by traditions and beliefs so that's that but so th- so then those that's that's that percentage of kids who struggle so much that it makes it, it they become difficult to have in the classroom then those are the kids that get referred so i just want to be clear like i want to make it clear that at fit a majority of our learners that we work with don't have a classification at all and they're still in the below the 30th percentile so yeah. let's just be clear about that like that's those measures those percentile rankings don't mean anything There's just as many kids who are below the 30th percentile that have no classification as there are that do have a classification, which is also hilarious to me, right? It depends on the teacher, you know, how alarmed she becomes, and also the profile of the kid. Because to be honest with you, it's the kids that develop that learn habits that become massive barriers in the classroom. Those are the ones that get referred. That's the only reason they get referred, because they they, they've developed. You know they've learned and acquired habits
0: through the such learning as, process, such as getting out of their chair, looking the away, chair. becoming. They, some of them get into mischief, yeah, right? Because they they can't
1: engage in the classroom effectively because they haven't learned what they need to learn to be effective in that classroom. So they they do other stuff to get it to access reinforcers, peer attention, teacher attention, escape, yeah, the environment that's that's aversive. So the kids who actually learn those, those barrier behaviors are the ones that get referred. Yeah. You know, the ones that don't get referred, the ones that blend in, have, have gotten good at faking it, you know, figured out how to make it seem like they know what they're doing, cheat. There are a lot of cheaters. You know, kids learn how to cheat early on to, to make it make it happen. Because again, school doesn't care about the process. School cares about the performance on one test and then they move on. You know, it's not about the learning process in the in school. I mean, to be honest with you, school banks on kids already knowing everything. Like if you watch a typical t- teacher in a classroom, she's teaching or he's teaching a new concept of the day. And what's the first thing they do? And I've watched a lot of classrooms in my life. The first thing you do is ask the class a question that that makes it seem like they should already know it. So like, for instance, we're going to learn about vowels today. Who in, who in the class can tell me what vowels are? That is one of the most classic things you will hear happen in school. So first of all, we're going to learn about vowels. But then the second thing the teacher says is who can tell me what vowels are? Okay, what does that tell you? That the class should already know. So what's the point? Of, if they already know it, What's the point of being in there? Number one. And number two, maybe one or two kids know it, but I promise you the majority of the class doesn't know it. But what does she do? She calls on the kid who already knows what vowels are. Yeah. And she lets that kid say the answer and then she moves on. And the rest of the kids who didn't say the answer and are completely checked out of the building and getting in trouble, are we surprised that a bunch of those kids get referred later on for, I don't know, attention deficit disorder or dyslexia or, or whatever it may be? Because guess what? They didn't already know the answer and she didn't tell them. And not only only didn't she did she not tell them, she didn't tell them, had them tell her back and reinforce them telling it back and then have then have her tell her as many times as they needed to tell her without her having to prompt them what the answer was for them to learn it. But then they but so then imagine how many kids are completely checked out of the classroom, and guess what they're practicing? Not attending all day long. They're practicing living in their world of whatever they create for themselves, right? Imagining stuff, remembering things, day you know, whatever you want to call it, daydreaming, thinking about lunch, thinking about recess, thinking about what they're going to do after school. Like they've got really good at just engaging and thinking because guess why? They're not, nothing's engaging them in the, in the overt environment. So they're not hanging out there. They're hanging out in their, in their covert environment. And then they get diagnosed with dyslexia, with, uh, with attention deficit or whatever it may be. Because why? Because the teacher failed to teach them and they failed to learn. And the teacher doesn't require them to be
0: engaged. It's not a requirement. Yeah. I mean, what came up for me just then is, I guess, how things are dealt differently in a precision teaching world. And I guess, it, can I just get you to talk a little bit about mastery? Because what you were talking about there is kids having almost no practice, no repeating of concepts to to mastery or until they're, they're effortless and easy and they have them and can call upon them at any time. So how does your account of mastery differ, for instance, to how schools measure in a classroom? Well, so first and foremost, I want to go back to the notion of learning as a process. Yeah.
1: And again, learning as a process is completely ignored. In, in education. Because again, classroom instruction goes the way I just said, where a teacher asks a question of the class about a concept that she's never taught them. And she picks one child who already knows the answer to answer it. And then she goes on to something else in the lesson.
0: So, like, that's how classroom instruction goes, right? Just to be there for one second, because you're not blaming the teachers, right? You're, you're blaming the system, correct? In, in other words, what you will say if you read any of Dr. Barron's information anywhere is the major problem with the education system is that teachers are not trained in behavior science. So it's not like you're blaming the teacher. You're saying they don't have a set of skills that allow them to teach in that way. Correct. Exactly. And I'm glad you said that because, you
1: know, it can come across like I'm blaming the teacher because I do use a lot of examples of what teachers do incorrectly, but they do it incorrectly because of inadequate training. To be honest with you, no training. I mean, teachers aren't trained in how to accelerate learning and measure learning and evaluate mastery. That's just not what they're trained to do. They're exposed to theories and opinions and belief systems and traditions. How to make through? and how to make their content.
0: Possibly,
1: yep. And like, well, they're not even trained in what content to use. They're They're exposed to content. But then guess what? That content gets changed over by school boards like every year and they have no control over that. So yeah. every year they're ex- they're expected to teach some whole new curriculum that they, that what they learn about curriculum in college, on um, the college of education is completely unrelated to what they're expected to do in the classroom because that gets turned over every year by school districts. Yeah. So teachers aren't actually trained in anything related to te- to teaching and learning, which is shocking. So no, it's not the teacher's fault. Teachers are tragic victims of all of this. They have no training in how the learning process works from a scientific perspective no training and actually ha- and in the fact that academic skills are behavior that require repeated reinforced practice for mastery to be achieved yeah so so it's not the teacher's fault at all and I'm glad you said that so it's not but that's sadly what happens because teachers don't know right they don't know so the learning process is ignored and so what i mean is how Every single learner in a classroom, how they are behaving with respect to that subject matter to be learned. So when they see, for instance, when they hear a question like what are vowels, can they reliably and rapidly say A, E, I, O, U? Right? Yeah. And so because that's never measured. It's never measured throughout the course of the instruction. The only time it might be measured is maybe a test. That's given at the end of the lesson, like when, they, when the timeline that is set for them arbitrarily by the school district, when the timeline tells them we have to move off vowels now and move on to whatever else, consonants, the teacher gives some kind of assessment to her class and then children get grades and then the teacher moves on and the grades aren't seen as a reflection of her instructional practices. They're seen as a reflection of the student. how much effort they put in to learn the material, how intelligent they are if they're learning disabled. So rather than the grade being an evaluation of the instruction, the grade is an evaluation of the student, which is why nothing changes. So if half the class fails that assessment, the teacher has to move on anyway, not because it's her fault, because the district makes her move on. So now you have a majority of the class who still doesn't know what a vowel is But now they're expected to use the understanding of vowels in some kind of word analysis task, let's say. But they still don't know what a vowel is. But now they're expected to use it for doing something new. Because grades aren't an evaluation of learning, they're an evaluation of performance. So we know in behavior science that learning is best defined as the change in behavior over time, period. So, if it increases or decreases, then learning is happening. if If behavior is changing in some way, then learning is happening, right? So if it's increasing or getting faster, then that behavior is being acquired into a repertoire. And if it's decreasing, then what we can assume is some other behavior is is now taking is has replaced the one, that one. So like, for instance, word guessing errors. Like if we looked at correctly decoding a word, as a as a correct res- like what we want the kid to do and guessing words as the bad habit we're trying to get rid of, well the more effective decoding that we get going by increasing the what we call rate, right, yeah. the count per time of that child engaging in decoding correctly, then that's naturally going to replace guessing. So guessing's going to decrease and appropriate word is going to increase. So both of those patterns reflect learning, right? So they're learning an adaptive skill that's replacing a maladaptive one.
0: Correct. And one so of those, and that's one of the skills that would cause a neuropsych to say this kid has dyslexia. Exactly. But you know what
1: the primary method of reading instruction is across the world, including the United States? And that is actually guessing. So there's something called balanced literacy in America, which has been is the renamed method of whole language. And the reason they had to rename it was because whole language got debunked decades ago and, and resulted in lawsuits, parents suing school districts for failure to teach their kids to read because whole language was used, which is basically sight reading and teaching kids to guess based on the first letter of a word and then maybe a picture or some kind of context clue. So after the whole language debacle, did they, did they change to what we know is the only evidence-based reading instruct, reading method, which is phonics and decoding, with some sight reading for words that can't be decoded. But there are much fewer words that, can be, that can't be decoded than there are that can be. So decoding is the primary reading strategy that proficient readers use. But did that take over the schools? No. What happened? Whole language got rebranded as balanced literacy. And so balanced literacy is the the method of reading instruction in 99% of schools in the United States of America, and more than 60% of kids are functionally illiterate in the United States. So balanced literacy doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it's teaching kids all of the habits that are actually in the DSM as characteristics of dyslexic people. Guessing, eyes darting around a page. Why do you think kids who learn to word guess have eye darting? They have eye darting because they're taught to look at the first letter and then search around for some clue to tell them what the word is. So that's why whole morbid with dyslexia are these eye tracking, these ridiculous, you know, now ophthalmological problems that they've invented all these crazy things for, like jumping on trampolines and looking at letter letters on the wall and wearing weird glasses and Guess why eye darting happens? Because they're trained to do that because they see a word and then they're like, okay, now look around and see if you can find some clue that tells you what the word is rather than use your phonics to sound the damn word out. So kids who get really good at all those crappy behaviors that the school trains them to do get, dis- get classified as, as dyslexic because they're doing exactly what they were taught.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's where we are.
0: And I'm the controversial figure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that makes me think, I mean, I guess what I love about this story, because people should get super excited about this story is, you know, if your child gets diagnosed with one of these made up hypothetical constructs, so there is something occurring in your child's brain that's made up and called some name like dyslexia. The really good news is almost certainly when you get an assessment um, by a precision teacher, they're going to see some key primary things. You can almost guess, right, that they don't have vowel sounds to fluency. They don't have consonant sounds to fluency. They can't discriminate a a, a letter name from a letter sound. The yep. very common things, and they haven't had sufficient practice as a result of decoding words. Therefore, their reading words is deficient, and it's it's almost you know you can almost guess if you get a neuroscan report like that, you can almost guess what those rates are going to be, and they're going to be very low rates with very high errors, and kids are going to break down when they get to decoding. So the great news is you're going to say that the prescription for this made-up learning disability is practice in letter names and sounds, and decoding and learning phonetic rules is basically what Fit Learning does and other organisations do to remediate these in inverted learning disabilities. The next question I want to ask you, because I don't know if I've had this experience, is have you had the awesome opportunity to have kids referred back to neurosites that have had these uh, learning disabilities attached to them? Frequently in the reports that I've seen, they often will say, your child is experiencing slow processing speed and this is something that don't, won't change. So you have to make accommodations in his environment to adapt for that. For instance, he might have to listen to books as opposed to read them or have them or have a scribe for him or have some other accommodation made for him. Have you ever had the experience where having done reading instruction with the kid and had them made really beautiful movements in their reading that they go back to neuroscience to show that that is something that is remediable? Well, of course. Of course. And and, and yeah. what do they say? Neurocytes? Yeah. That.
1: It depends on the neuropsych. So we have a neuropsychologist in Reno, Nevada, where our headquarters is. That's kind of where our original office Mm -hmm. was developed out there when I was in graduate school. And a neuropsychologist out there discovered us years ago. And this is what happened with her, was that she had done um, a neuropsych on a kid and then his mom discovered fit on her own. And then this this neuropsychologist had the opportunity to reevaluate that kid and she couldn't understand what happened. Because the child's profile before fit from her perspective was that he was going to be significantly reading impaired for the majority of his life. And then he came back to her and she's like, what in the heck just happened? So then she had the opportunity to meet with, so then I invited, she reached out to me, she was amazing. She reached out to me, we had meetings and then we became friends and she started referring kids to us and we have the same situation happen with multiple children that she had she was able to reevaluate. So now, I mean, she's, she refers all of her kids to fit. She's still, she's still kind of wedded to the idea that the learning disability is the original cause, but that we know how to treat it rather than there really wasn't a disability to begin with. There was an ineffective instruction situation happening. There was an educational disability. Like the school was disabled. The classroom was disabled, not the student. But regardless, she gets it that it's that it's fixable. And so that's the other thing that is so remarkable to me is that, you know, we have, without a, without fail, and you know our outcome data because you're part of this, <laughs> like without fail, we accelerate classified kids and I, this is these data are actually in my book. Yes. But they're also, we, rep, we, rep, we I mean, those data are now dated from 2019 when I wrote the book. But we replicate these results quarter after quarter, as you know, because we do all these huge outcome analyses every quarter. Our classified kids, our kids who have been classified with a learning disability of some sort, move at the same rate within one percentile rank difference on normed referenced assessments as our non-classified kids. We produce the same rate of learning gains with our classified kids as we do our non-classified kids. What does that tell you? That tells you there's nothing wrong with their ability to learn. That's what it says. Mm -hmm. But what's amazing is that there's some educators and neuropsychologists that will say, oh, you treated the dyslexia or you gave the child a a way to work through their disability. So even when you have a kid that no longer shows up on an academic achievement test as having some kind of disability, quote unquote, there are people in the psychological and educational world who will say, oh no, they're still dyslexic. You've just taught them to overcome it. Right. That's how wedded our culture is to explanatory fictions yeah. of this sort when it comes to human beings. It's
0: remarkable to me. It's
1: remarkable. Do you remarkable.
0: think, uh, just like some of the medical <laughs> fictions from the past, do you think this is something that is going to change? Well, I think the only way to change it is for people like us to educate the public about it.
1: Because, you know, I, I honest with you, there's not many people who talk about this like, like we do we are a minority. I mean, I've been, I've been, we've been a fit learning has been blackballed by the dyslexia. One of the huge dyslexia yeah. associations, in the United States, because I say these things because there's such a, people are so wedded to the idea that these, these, these disabilities are real. Yeah. It becomes a part of someone's identity. I mean, to be honest with you, I have plenty of kids who've been classified and these are kids, high school students, middle school students who've been told for so many years that they actually have dyslexia or they have another type of disability that they actually, they believe this so strongly. And then actually it defines them like, oh, I can't do that because of my dyslexia, or that's really hard for me because of my dyslexia. It becomes a part of their being, which is so disempowering. Yeah, so sad. It's one of the most disempowering things you can do to a learner. And then once the learner becomes an adult, like for instance, Caitlin, Caitlin, you know, Caitlin, she's our Dynamo Regional Director of the Tri-State Operation. She's one of the most brilliant precision teacher, behavior scientists I've ever had the opportunity to mentor. She... The acceleration and learning gains that she produces with learners and with people who work for us. So the, the way she can train and produce an effective educator is literally, I've never seen anything like it. And she was told she had dyslexia her whole life, yeah, her entire life. And it took a few years of her work with us for her to get what a myth that was. Even someone like her, I mean, it took multiple years of her being in this organization for her to really get how how what a, what a mythology that was for her. And so, you know, what people really need to understand is complex repertoires of behavior look like something different. So like when you think about someone like an infant, for instance, learning to pick something up right? Like, so learning to reach and grasp something. Somehow that seems different than a, than a, than a child reading a story with comprehension. Like it somehow seems like two different things, which is why all this stuff has been made up about academic skills. Because academic skills seem different than some of the more rudimentary things kids learn that they clearly learn from the environment. Like you can clearly see a learner, like a a child learning to pick up and grasp an object because it immediately impacts the environment in some way. And that's what reinforced the behavior, right? Like the reason that learner continues to pick up and grasp the object is because grasping the object is is reinforcing for them for fun. So they keep doing it over and over again because the environment is immediately reinforcing it. But when you can't see the immediate impact of a behavior on the environment, for instance, anything academic, then it, it seems open to... Metaphysical explanations just because it seems that way doesn't mean that's true.
0: Yeah. so
1: you know, reading is as a as a complex repertoire always you can always take any complex behavioral repertoire and break it down into its fundamental units so reading even like when I'm reading some of my complicated neuroscience and I don't read neuropsychology stuff, I read neuroscience, which is a which is a natural science, just like biology and chemistry and physics and behavior science. So neuroscience is quite real. And to be quite honest, neuroscience has done a brilliant job debunking the notion of, pre- of learning disabilities. And I can get into that. But neuroscience, let's say I'm reading some complicated peer reviewed publication in neuroscience. Guess where that repertoire started for me? Letter names, <laughs> demonic sounds, exposing basic words, that's where it started for me. And now, because I've mastered to fluency, a measure of mastery that combines accuracy with rate, with pace. So I, I, you know, I am fluent at identifying vowel sounds and content sounds and decoding words and then reading words without having to decode them and sight reading words that can't be decoded. And then I moved up to another level of then decoding words into multisyllabic units rather than phonetic ones. And then I'm automatically reading those multisyllabic words without having to code them. And then guess what I got to do? I got to then combine my already existing language repertoire that I learned from my enriched environment as a child, where I had a huge language repertoire. then I started, to, "Oh, oh!" So that word I say looks like this and also means this." So then I got to engage in all these complicated reading comprehension skills. But because I practiced and then it got harder and harder and harder as I moved up the ladder. Now, look, yeah, I can read with comprehension at an unbelievably rapid rate, a neuroscience, peer-reviewed neuroscience publication. Mm -hmm. But I didn't start reading peer-reviewed neuroscience publications. I started by learning to recognize letters and the sounds. So like, even though it may seem magical, it isn't. It starts with rudimentary fundamental skills and the, the, the heartbreaking thing is for kids who never have the opportunity to master those fundamental skills to fluency, to a measure of automaticity that is, is synonymous with neurological permanence. When kids don't get the opportunity to master skills that way, guess what happens? They're moved up the ladder anyway. Yeah. by schools As if they have mastered them. And then it's going to come to a point where they start looking like they have something wrong with them, like they're disabled. And then they're going to get a mythological learning disability diagnosis. But there's nothing disabled about them. They just haven't mastered
0: fundamental skills. Yeah. And that just really brings up an analogy for me because I always make this comparison because I love sports so much. But like if you go out and watch an athletic coach and how they'll train an athlete and they might be working with a kid or anybody really that really lacks a lot of component skills for something like, like I like to sprint. There's so many components to be a good sprinter, but they don't look at you running and go, well, we think there's something wrong in your brain that you can't run, right? They go, you know what? You, you need to do a lot of work. You're going to have to get some strength in the gym. You're going to have to do repeated practice of running 30 meters. We're going to have to work on these drills to improve your sprint performance and your those little skills are going to help you drive into the ground. So you look at when you start looking at sport, it's very different, right? And then you see how they practice. Then they do repeated practice of those things until they're so easy and effortless that you don't have to think about them when you're in a race. And it's the same with soccer and basketball and stuff. And when I make that comparison for parents, they're like, you know, and I say, remember when your kid first started playing basketball and they couldn't even bounce a ball? And then they did heaps of practice and they went along and they practiced outside of games and then they got practice in the game. And in sport, it looks totally different, right? People don't try and say that there's anything, you know, wrong with the brain or the body that these kids don't have these skills. They just haven't had enough practice and enough quality practice. But for some reason, when it comes to academic skills, Teachers want to put it back to the brain because modern psycho, you know, what I will call traditional
1: psychology and education and because they, they are not trained as scientists. Yeah. And so they're scientifically illiterate, you know, and when you're talking about fields like athletics, training, musical training, training complex, like chess, for instance, like anyone who's in charge of training champions, they, you know, they may not know they understand it from a scientific perspective. And there's a lot of bad sports coaching. I mean, it is rampant. Yes. That is an area that needs massive help. Yes. Because they are not, to, like I, my son is a top, is a massive athlete. And guess what? He could be profoundly better if his coaches, specifically in hockey, had actually done this Most from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Right? So like, but you know what the the champion athletes the champion musicians the champion chess players those people had the opportunity to be trained by a coach who got this yeah. and they might not known what known what they were doing was from a scientific perspective but they got it because to be honest with you behavior science is common sense yes if you have the opportunity to actually you know accidentally stumble on how it works Because you had that common sense perspective. But like one area that is absolutely informed by behavior science intentionally is video game development. Yeah. Video game developers are informed and guided by behavior scientists. And that is why it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And that is why kids of all ages get profoundly good at playing video
0: games and become obsessed with playing them. Because Guess why? Behavior science. Yeah, they move on levels based on mastering one level, yes. right? So, usually, it's, not, it's usually fluency based, meaning it's based yeah. on rate. Yeah. It's not based on
1: accuracy. It's not based on how correct they are. It's the rate at which they can perform the skills involved in the game. And they can't move up the next level until they master the previous level. And they also and
0: understand it, schedules of reinforcement, right? It's, new, it's, <laughs> intermittent, it's powerful. Yep. It's based it's immediate. Precise goals
1: for each individual learner. None of that's anywhere to be found in academics training ever. I mean, except for in places like Fit Learning and other precision teaching-based organizations. But it's not. That's not the mainstream. The mainstream is a sloppy mess. And you know, so that's why kids become addicted to video games. You know, I always try to get out to the public as well. That think about this. There are real neurological learning impairments, and none of nothing that I have said should be taken as me saying there aren't I mean your daughter for instance Mandy that we've worked with together as a team to dramatically accelerate her learning gains she has a true neurological impairment that shows up in the form of uh, that we call autism again that's just a name yeah it's all it's a name but that's the name we use to describe some of the challenges Juliet has learning yes there are real neurological challenges for a kid. But those, but kids who have real neurological impairments, those don't just show up all of a sudden when they start having to learn academics. Yeah. That is the biggest racket. So I always say to parents who come to me and they and the quote-unquote experts have told them their kid has whatever disability or diagnosis and I and so I just ask them some basic questions. Did your child start grasping objects, sitting up, Moving around, playing with toys, making vocalizations, talking, feeding themselves, dressing themselves, bathing themselves, playing sports, playing with their friends, playing video games. Did your child have any trouble doing any of those things? No. So when did your child start struggling? When they started learning to read. Yeah. So what what I want to emphatically say is that the brain is not selective in that way.
0: <laughs> it's not. It, reading it doesn't say, reading, "I want to learn all of these things." but when it comes to reading, no way, Jose, I'm going to stop there.
1: Reading is not genetic. It's not genetic. It's not a biological ability that is so made up. Reading is an invention by yes. the human species that has helped organize and advance our world in remarkable ways. It is a symbolic strategy that we invented. So there's no gene in the brain for reading. That is a lie that has never once been empirically validated ever. It's all made up. So if your child learned to learn all their other adaptive skills in their lives from the natural environment and from just common sense parenting tactics, which to be honest with you are pretty sloppy. If those work, If those common sense parenting strategies work out for your kid, there is nothing wrong with their learning. Yeah. So if if the only thing your child has struggled to learn occurs in the school environment, um, hello, like let's call a spade a spade, then that means there's something wrong with the school environment. There's nothing wrong with your kid's learning abilities. They learn to think about all the
0: amazing things your child has learned Yeah. until they go to school. Yeah, think about the complexities of social skills and talking to friends and taking turns and playing games, playing yeah. ima- think about imaginary know that is. imaginary
1: play. Like there are red flags. So if your child did not start like doing gross motor and fine motor things, if they had to be taught to sit up, you know if you had to have some kind of intervention to get them to hit physical, you know gross motor milestones okay, red flag. If your child did not naturally imitate you, if your child was not, all, you know, suddenly kind of imitating your facial expressions, your vocalizations, your if you smile, they smile. As infants, when your child starts smiling after when you smile, that's a sign that your child's learning is on track because imitation is the number one form that The the number one vehicle by which infants learn, which is why it's so, it's now we know it's it's reflexive. It's 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 in our DNA because it enhances survival. It's it's, if we've evolved that way, it's been selected in our repertoire. So the number one characteristics of children with autism is that they don't do that. Yeah. You have to teach kids on the spectrum to imitate the behavior of others. That is a learning impairment. But if your child did all those things naturally and then suddenly they can't learn to read, well, I would question how they're being taught to read, not their learning ability. Why is that the first place we go? Well, we don't. Why is that the first place the world goes? Because the educational establishment does not want to change their practices. Yeah. They want to blame the learner,
0: which is why nothing ever changes. And so that brings me to a point is that one of the <laughs> disabilities that, um, your lovely husband, Dr. Nick, prescribes to himself, and I hope he doesn't mind me raising that, BSS or bad oh, school school syndrome, syndrome. Bad teaching syndrome. I call it BTS. Yeah, so that's probably the only diagnosis that you will give your kids, which is the environment is not enriched. It's not catering for the student's needs. And on that note, I also want to just say, because it's always uh, at the forefront of my mind that even though I have a daughter with severe neurological impairments, she is a proficient reader. And just like you said, when you take a complex skill and break it down, sometimes you just have to go back a long, long way. <laughs> to oh, the, yeah. And, and you just have to spend a lot more time. And honestly. it takes more time. And so, what I love about precision teachers is they say that the child knows best. There's nothing wrong with a child, but something wrong with a, a child's environment. And if you change the environment, you can change the child and give them a skill set. And um, for my daughter, even with the most devoid skill set to start with has become a proficient reader and she continues to gain reading comprehension and she is off the scales in terms of her math computation, etc. So even kids with that will do well with these types of methodologies using behavioral science in learning. So I hope that we got that message across. We we might get some nasty follow-up communication to people that feel, what would you say, wronged by taking away the label of the disability that might attach either to themselves or their children. But I, I guess we do that because we continue to work with these kids that come to us with learning disabilities who outgrow those learning, made up learning disabilities and learn that they don't have to be held back by those labels and empower those kids. And you have been around long enough in this field to see those kids go on to do remarkable things in their communities and beyond. And that's why you um, are taking the stand and opening yourself to criticism from, uh, you know, certain avenues is because you believe so wholeheartedly in how important this is for individual kids, but also for the planet that we take away this massive barrier of putting some false label on someone that can impair them for life, right?
1: Well, I mean, yes. And look, you know, I just want to be clear. My, I don't value making people wrong. Like that's not my core value, like not my core value and my mission and my, my passion isn't about making people wrong. My passion is about transforming educational practices on the planet so that they're informed by behavior science, such that every single child has the opportunity to master an, you know, their academic skills and discover their own greatness. I mean, that's my, that is my fundamental commitment in life. And uh, and I see over and over and over and over and over again, the unbelievable damage that this type of testing and classification does. And look, there are times when, you know, when, when, when people say to me, but doesn't it give kids access to, to services in the district when they get these labels? Yes, it does. But I want you to consider the outcomes of those services. More than in the United States, more than 90% of learners classified with a a learning disability graduate below proficiency in all academic subjects. Think about that. 90%. So what are those services doing? And those services are specifically designed based on the notion that those kids actually have a real disability. And all that can be hoped for is that that disability is accommodated in some way. Uh, you know, Books, you know, audio recordings of books, special seating assignment, spe- you know, modification of their assignments, being put in a special class, being, I've seen all too many times, they're basically in a life skills program where they have, you know, they're not expected to achieve anything. So they're, they're basically helping in the copy room or whatever. I mean, once they get to high school, it's just shocking. So it, it, it's lazy. If it's nothing else, first of all, it's profoundly damaging more often than not. And it's lazy because it doesn't lead to effective action. It, it's, a, it's a name for a set of behaviors that is presented as an explanation when nothing has been explained, but it's presented in some way, such a way that it makes a parent think that it's been explained. Oh, that, you know, why can't my child read? They have dyslexia. Well, how do you know they have dyslexia? They can't read.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: You find yourself, in it. we call that the vicious circle that explanatory fictions produce. So how do you know that you've been fed an explanatory fiction? Try to see if you, if you are in a feedback circle. If you're in a feedback circle, if you're, in a circul- if you're in circular reasoning or circular logic, then you have been fed an explanatory fiction because that's what explanatory fictions produce. Circles of logic. So why can't Johnny read? He's dyslexic. How do you know he's dyslexic because he can't read is basically what has been said, right? He struggles to read. Why? He's dyslexic. How do you know he struggles to read because that's all they have evidence of it. It applies to any of these learning disabilities. How do you know my son has dyscalculia because he struggles with math? Well, why does he struggle with math? Because he has dyscalculia. But how do you know he has dyscalculia because he struggles with math? If you're in a feedback loop, then you're not, then. Then you are not doing science. Science actually leads to true, a true understanding of the causal relationship between variables, where you're not in a feedback loop. So I would say, why can't Johnny read? Because he has never mastered to fluency identifying letter names, identifying co- um, vowel sounds, identifying consonant sounds, discriminating between vowels and consonants, decoding words, so on and so forth. And I'm going to move. I'm going to accelerate those core skills, and as I'm accelerating those core core skills through measurable through the measurement of his behavior over time, I'm going to evaluate his long term reading goals and see am I getting am I making an impact on those. So what I'm what am I going to do? I'm going to move stuff around and measure it.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to be in a feedback circle over and over and over and that over and over again. That seems like a really, a really awesome opportunity to just quickly check in on this case study because I promised to do that at the very beginning. And so now we can take, do you have that data in front of you? let me pull, yeah, it was right Right. So we have a neuropsych test of a little boy in year three and then his precision teaching assessment, a fit learning assessment. And what I'm going to be able to get you to do, if you're just in front of there, is on his intake assessment, uh, we assessed all of the component skills of reading. Yes. And I think you're going to be able to look at that first two pages and say to me, he's not reading because of X, Y, and Z, not because of his diagnosis right. of dyslexia and potential ADHD. Yep. <laughs> um, but he's, he's not reading on intake because of these component skills.
1: Right, and remember when you're talking about a neuropsych evaluation. You are talking about when their academic achievement, you know, the academic achievement tests that they use in those target extremely complicated skills. Yes. Those those assessments don't break
0: skills down into their fundamental components. Yeah. So this child... Or even going back to to very easy read passages, right? They're going to assess a grade level read, (laughs) read passage. Yeah. For a kid that doesn't have any components of reading.
1: So this child who was diagnosed with specific learning disorder, with impairment in reading, with impairment in word reading accuracy, with impairment in reading or fluency, with impairment with reading comprehension, and then they put a DSM number and then they say, for example, dyslexia. And then this child was also diagnosed with specific learning disorder, with impairments, this makes me laugh so hard, in written expression, with impairment with spelling, with impairment with clarity or organization of written expression, With impairment, with grammar and punctuation accuracy. I mean, it's just like, what? Okay, so, and that's, there's another DSM number for that. So that's in the DSM. Literally grammar, punctuation, which is like a human invention. It's just crazy. All right, so that's the diagnosis this child's been given. And let me just, from, from his fit learning reading assessment, where we go in and we, with precision, evaluate all the component skills of reading and the accuracy rates with which those skills can be performed. Okay, so reading readiness—that this kid could not match lowercase letters yeah. to one another. Forty percent correct, eight correct per minute. Letter matching. All right. So this kid could not match letters as the same. They all. He was also only eighty-three percent correct. And 20 per minute at matching upper to lowercase, which is so interesting to me that he did worse on identity matching with lowercase letters and better on upper to lowercase
0: matching. Anyway. It's learning through the assessment though too, right? As kids go yep. on, we been talking to them going, wow, you did really well on this one. On the next one, this is a little bit the same. And so, of course, as behavioral scientists, we are reinforcing and shaping using differential reinforcement for attending. Because is a little kid yep. that came to us, you know, with a potential ADHD diagnosis. So we're going to establish a highly motivating environment with lots of reinforcement for performance and attending. So you often see that kids start to get better as they go on through the assessment. But anyway, sorry. So vowel sounds, sorry, consonant sounds 70% correct
1: and 28 sounds per minute. Yeah. And that should be 100% correct and 100 sounds per minute for that to be a repertoire that a child can apply to decoding words. Yeah. Again, 40% correct on vowel sounds. Oh, he was actually better at vowel
0: sounds. I mean, yeah. identifying vowels. He was yeah, actually I better. find at that. That kids, at, 100% they're much better sound. at teaching vowel sounds than they are at consonant sounds. Well, they're fewer. There's only five. Yeah. Right? Rather but than. Literally, the two key components is that he didn't have fluency on his letter names, his lowercase letter names, his consonant sounds, and he needed more work on his vowel sounds. And once we, did but he also that, had
1: no understanding. I will say he had no ability to to identify why words are read in specific ways, which correct. we would call rules. So right. no
0: under, you no know, completely inaccurate, and no fluency at answering questions about words. And so yet like, he had good language, and even that showed up in his neuropsych testing. He never of rules of of how to sound out words, yeah, exactly. Clearly. Even Those simple like, words like CBC words, yeah. What's so, amazing? is that, couldn't sound out even simple words. No, couldn't. It's all. It looks all inaccurate and
1: disfluent. But what's amazing to me is when I, you know, when we run a reading assessment like this, where we get so many, like we look at so many skills in separate timed assessments. I would never present this assessment to a parent and say, "Okay, this is the perfect example." Yeah. So your child scored seventy percent correct and 28 per minute on this assessment. That means they have dyslexia and slow processing speed. I would never say that. I would say this is why your child can't read. Yeah. 70% correct on phonics and 28 per minute on phonics is why your child's not able to accurate, to fluently decode words. So we need to improve his fluency on this skill through repeated, reinforced practice to mastery. I'm not, I'm not going to show them this score and tell them why he's scoring like this. I have no idea. I don't have access to that. I don't know why it's, I mean, I, I I can make an assumption that it's because he had no opportunity to practice to mastery this skill. I have no idea, but I, 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 all I know is the score. And all I know is if that score doesn't improve to fluency, he'll never read fluently. So I know I have to fix it. So, all I do in an assessment is say, this is where he is on these skills. And this is what we have to fix. We have to improve all these skills to fluency if he's going to be a fluent reader. And guess what? Mandy, you can attest to this. Do we ever fail? No. We move these kids skills to fluency. And guess what? Kids also laterally move on norm reference assessments of reading. Why? Because they can read. Yeah. We talk Make something up about why their scores are so low. First of all, I know why their scores are so low because school doesn't work. I don't have right. to make up some magical thing. Oh, he can't decode any of these words or identify his phonics sounds because of dyslexia. I'm not going to make things up. I'm just going to say these are his scores, and this is what we need to fix. And we're going to do. We're going to fix it by doing this. There you go. Let's go fix it. I'm not going to make up reasons that I don't have access to. And my, and my primary reason is going to be well more, op, parents will ask me that. Well, why does he has a learning disability? I was like, look, I'm not going to know anything about your child's learning until I'm actually measuring their learning. This is a measure of performance. I haven't measured learning with your kid at all. So I am not going to speak to anything about their learning abilities until I actually see them as a learner in the learning environment over time. But what I can tell you is their score is their score. And more often than not, it's because they just never had effective instruction or repeated reinforced practice to fluency. But if there's something more going on, if there's some real kind of neurological barrier, well, we'll see that
0: as we're working with a child. Because that, that's possible? I don't know. I have no idea. That's what you're going to do, right? Eliminate everything else first. So you're going to ensure that there is an environment, an instructional environment that's going to promote learning. You've got to adapt the curriculum materials to, to where a child can be successful and build upon those small skills. You're yep. going to measure performance through standard measures to make sure that your instruction is resulting in higher level skills unfolding, like reading. And yep. and you're going to make changes as you go based on data, not on some made up fiction about what's wrong with a child's brain.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's why half the time when parents say, Well, he's had a neuropsych evaluation. Do, do you, do, I'm, I'm going to send that to you. And, I'm like, <laughs> and, and I, I say,
0: don't, don't, don't bother. Is that what you I say? Don't
1: Yes. Yeah. I was like, you don't need to know what yeah. it's going
0: to say. I actually
1: don't, I don't need to see it. I don't want to see it. I know what it's going to say and it's going to provide no, just like it. And I always say to parents, so did that provide, did that help you fix this? And they're like, well, no, we've been around and around and around the ringer since we paid the
0: $10,000 to have this neuropsych done. I but the like, problem with that is too, then it gives the an excuse to the school as to why they can't teach that student effectively. We can't help it because he's got dyslexia. We can't help her because he's got fluid processing speed and that can't be changed. And so it, absolves, it takes away responsibility, responsibility for, for effective instruction.
1: So parents are always desperate for the why. It's so interesting because we're, it's so ingrained in them that I should be telling them why their child performed this way in the assessment. And I'll say, look, I have no idea why your child scored this way. I was like, I'll tell you the, more, the most likely reason is that they have never received effective instruction and have never had the opportunity to engage in repeated, reinforced practice of skills to fluency. That is the most likely reason. And I was like, but this assessment isn't about giving you the why this has occurred for him. This assessment is about telling you what's missing and what we need to fix. And this is how we're going to fix it. And let's move on. I don't need to make up reasons for you because I can't see the, I, don't, I can't see his history And one perform, and that's an like, look, being a scientist is about telling the truth, period. It's about finding objective truth and then telling the truth about what was found. And that's what, what just devastates me the most is because it's not, it's, it's untruthful for a neuropsychologist to tell a parent that this has been uh, without a doubt identified. It's made up. It's, that is not true. They have, not, they have not identified cause for that child's reading scores anywhere in that assessment. The cause has never been identified, but they suggest it has and make parents believe this. And it leads to lifelong classifications, kids being put in unbelievably ineffective services, kids being given a scapegoat for a lot of barrier behaviors, no one being responsible and ultimately d- destroying the chance that a child's having a high quality of life. Yeah. I mean, it'd be one thing if these classifications led to effective action, but more often than not, they do not. They they actually lead to the opposite. So the reason why we use a prescriptive assessment of this sort is because it leads to effective action and it makes us accountable for what we do. Like, for instance, I'm looking at your assessment table on this kid. You moved him from 71% correct and 60 sounds and words per minute on sounding out short vowel words to hundred percent correct and 128. So that's, that's a times two. That's 60 to 128 sounds and words a minute and 40 hours of instruction.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking at an ad that this kid presented with that behavior that you know so well of reversing his B's and D's, his P's and Q's, his K's and X's and his Y's and Us, mixing up those discriminations. And so as you know, There is a lot of work to do to unwind all of those errors and and scrollings from the past. So so this particular student presented with all of those behaviours, so we had to unwind that as well. But he still got to fluency in all of those. And in the next enrollment, that started to roll out in his read rate and he started to gain things that we didn't teach him. So even given all of those barrier behaviours, all of those things that he had practised for many years of guessing and (laughs) Those bad habits. Those bad habits that were obviously they would have shown up in the classroom, but instead of attributing it to, hey, this little kid's make, always making errors on his B's and D's. We Maybe need to fix that. that. No, they refer That's him to neuroscience testing <laughs> and says, oh, if you're reversing your B's and D's and your P's and Q's and, and mixing up your Y's and U's, that probably means you have dyslexia and it's not your fault and, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, yeah, so even with all of those barrier behaviors in place, he was still able to sound out words to fluency within 40 hours and start reading passages. And he had beautiful comprehension. So the more he read, the more he comprehended and the more he started to enjoy reading. And you didn't go in there and fix his dyslexia. You went no, in we didn't and- open his brain and find a place in the brain. Attribute <laughs> yeah, his dyslexia. I reading skills, yeah. Is-
1: All right. One more thing before we wrap up. Yes. And this again, just is scientific illiteracy. You know, a lot of neuropsychologists will point to, oh, but it has been empirically validated that dyslexia is real because there have been these brain scan studies done. And again, so I do, I'm very familiar with the neuroscience literature. I'll be quite honest. I spend a lot of time in that literature and neuroscience is very different from neuropsychology. There's two things wrong with that statement that neuropsychologists will make. Number one, the brain scan studies that they're referring to about proving the existence of neurological learning disabilities are correlational in nature. And this is, again, when you're scientifically illiterate, you don't understand the difference between, like, you know, that correlation does not yield causation. Okay. So correlational brain scan studies have been done. And what they do is they take kids who've been classified with like, you know, some type of learning disability of which dyslexia is the most common for these types of, uh, I'm not going to call them studies. Well, I guess it's a correlational study, but it's, it's not science. Okay. So they take a group of kids classified with dyslexia and a group of kids non-classified, and then they put them in in MRI machines and they, they look for differences in their brains. And guess what? There are differences, yeah. Right? Surprise, surprise. Their brains look different, and actually, specific parts of their brains consistently look different, right? Yeah. And from these correlational studies, then unfortunately, psychologists who again are are not trained as scientists. I, I'm going to be very clear about that. That is an, that is unbelievably wrong to suggest that correlation is ever an empirical validation. It's incorrect. It does not. And secondly a lack of understanding about neuroscience. So psychologists take those correlations and say, see, their brains look different. So that indicates that these dyslexic kids' brain differences are the cause of their reading problems. Okay. So number one, that is not scientific evidence. That is a correlation that where, where causal attribute is made, which is actually not scientific at all that is it that is a, that is a scientific error that when you're actually trained in real hard science like i am you are you. they they hound that into you into your repertoire as a graduate student over and over and over again that that is the that is the worst thing you could possibly do is to extrapolate cause when no cause has been demonstrated that is one of the most fundamental errors to make i mean the most tragic errors to make in science which is what psychologists do all the time. So so that correlation does not mean anything. Number two, the real empirical evidence that has been identified is from the field of neuroscience, where neuroscience has now repeatedly demonstrated that, surprise, surprise, learning, (laughs) how crazy to say, learning is what produces neurological changes in the brain. Wow, what a concept. You mean a kid's brain isn't born hardwired in some way and it and that's what dictates what kids do? No, that's actually been profoundly debunked. What has been demonstrated is that as the as the person behaves in the environment and that behavior is followed by reinforcement, a neurological process simultaneously occurs, and that is what learning is. And as that process occurs over and over and over again, a permanent neural pathway is produced in the brain. So are we surprised then, now that we know that neuroscience has totally debunked the brain first theory and has demonstrated that neuroplasticity means that the brain responds and adapts as a person behaves in their environment, period. And as that repeated reinforcement occurs, neural pathways are produced. That's how it works. That's how neurology is produced from birth to death. That's how our brains are, are changed. It's by the learning process, not ahead of time. So, the reason dyslexic, quote unquote, people's brains look different than non dyslexic, quote unquote, people's brains, why? Because the people that classed with dyslexia haven't learned the same repertoire as the, they are not reading. So of course, and they're engaging in different types of habits that have been acquired through the learning process than non-dyslexics have. So to suggest that their brains are the cause of their dyslexia is so hilariously scientifically illiterate, I can't even begin to get there. I mean, true scientists laugh at these suggestions because it is actually the the ineffective training that has led to differences in their learning outcomes are what makes their brains look different. It does not the other way around. Their brain differences didn't exist ahead of time and that's never been demonstrated, not once ever. So all of the empirical evidence they point to in neuropsych is actually not empirical at all. It's all correlational and it's not scientific. And it's only more indicative of the scientific literacy of that field. Whereas neuroscience is doing every day more and more work to show how the learning process itself impacts the brain, not the other way around. Now, there are kids with real neurological differences. But again, those differences show up at birth. Not at age six when they start reading.
0: So there you go. There was a lot to describe and I just really want to thank you so much for taking this on because a lot of parents that I work with really struggle with these assessments and I often refer them to an article that you have on your website, but this has been an expansion upon that and it's wonderful to have documented this. Thank you so much. This is going on the ABA and PT podcast. A big part of this is behavioral science and then a precision teaching as well in terms of how to remediate kids that turn up with this skill deficit. As always, I love spending time with you. I can't wait to see you uh, very soon in Denver at IPTC. So I may as well advertise that. You are the keynote speaker at IPTC. Can you please tell us what you'll be speaking about?
1: Well, you know, I'm excited because I'm going to be presenting on 25 years of discovery at Fit Learning. Do natural science the way we do. You know, I like to call it natural applied science. Where every single learner, you know, we're doing natural science with every single learner to evaluate how we can most effectively accelerate their learning gains and produce, you know, all kinds of awesome generative outcomes. When you've been doing that work for 25 years, you figure out you 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 discover a lot of really cool stuff. So I'm just gonna share number one, a ton of charts. When you do inductive work like we do too, like that's the other difference between modern psychology, which is deductive in like social y, and inductive science, which is basically, we are collecting and analyzing way more data than we can ever share. And then we share a sample of what we discovered, right? Because we couldn't possibly share the 10,000 charts that we have on kids that show the same phenomenon. So I'm going to be sharing a sampling of learning charts on kids that reflect a lot of the discoveries we've made. And then I'll be showing some more kind of global aggregate data and sharing some of the publications we've had that people might not be aware of, you know, some of our more peer reviewed stuff. So it'll be fun. It's basically just going to be like a big data dump.
0: Great. I can't (laughs) wait. (laughs) Love that note. Thank you so much for your time. You're the busiest woman on the planet, but you always make time to talk about something that's very important. And this to me is critical for professionals and families that come along get these kids sent to them that have these diagnoses and um, you've given them some language to use around that and some questions to ask and make sure they don't get wrapped up in these these circular definitions. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andy. It was so you, thank you for listening to episode 14 of the ABA and PT podcast with the phenomenal Dr. Kimberly Behrens. You'll find references to a huge list of podcasts and publications that Dr. Behrens has available, given her 25 years in the field. You can join the ABA and PT podcast Facebook group for more resources. For those interested in learning more about precision teaching, the 35th Annual Conference of the Stand and Society is being held in Denver from the 3rd to the 5th of November. I believe you can purchase virtual seats as well for those of my listeners that can't travel. Dr. Behrens is the keynote speaker and I'm excited to be co-presenting with Dr. Bob Borsham on the use of the standard acceleration chart in sprinting. Anyone that has an interest in using the chart in sport, I hope you'll come along and hear me speak and share what you know. It's one of my passions to take the chart to the sporting community. I'm also delighted to be co-presenting with Jonathan Amy, and some others on oral motor programming to promote speech acquisition. Busy month ahead, I'll see you on the other side.